0: All right. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrated baptisms this week. Whenever you need to do really serious sermon study, you, of course, go to Facebook. And so I asked some people, uh, what are some food combinations that you eat that are disgusting? Like the average person would be like, you know, why would you do that? And so I got a number of replies. People were very excited to talk about how weird they are. Uh, but all of them were caveated with, but I ate this when I was a kid. You didn't even. when you still eat it now, like ain't no shame, just be honest, it's okay, we're all weird. And so I want to share with you some of these kind of weird food combinations that people eat, apparently when they were just kids, but probably like happened this week. So here are some of them. Uh, somebody said sour cream and cheddar chips dipped in grape jelly. So yeah, <laughs> whoa. Uh, somebody else said coffee and orange juice. Now, I don't drink coffee, so it's kind of gross for me anyway, but here's the recipe if you're curious. It's black coffee mixed with a tablespoon of cold orange juice, okay? So that's maybe what you're missing. Somebody else said grape jelly and Cheetos. So there's a theme here. Grape jelly is probably just the thing you're missing in your life. If you're missing, just (laughs) dip it in grape jelly, whatever you have for lunch today. Just go for it. Somebody else said apple slices dipped in tang, So you guys remember like the tang juice, the orange drink, whatever? You you cut it, dip it. I don't know. Someone did it. Um, Someone else said pizza and applesauce. So just a thin layer of applesauce right over that. That's kind of weird. Someone else said mayonnaise on cheese pizza. So I don't know which is worse, applesauce or mayonnaise on pizza. I don't know. Somebody else said uh, apple pie and ketchup. (laughs) Somebody said mmm. So we know who posted that one. Uh, another person said peanut butter and a mayonnaise sandwich, so that's a thing. And then maybe last, or not last, but not least, I'll end with just one more because you guys are like, this is disgusting. I'm going to leave. Somebody said, somebody said a sandwich made of kosher dill pickles and M&Ms. So you get your bread, you get your pickles, you get your M&Ms, put them together, and then they said they wash it down with orange diet right. So apparently, they, again, they, when they were kids, they said they threw up afterwards, but it was always a really good time. So I don't know. Those are some things that are gross that don't go together. Now, I share that because this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus do something and bring people together or bring someone together that we would assume if we were living in a first century context do not go together, and Jesus should not do those things. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around and you can read along with us. If you've been with us, we've seen the last, at least the last couple of weeks, Jesus performing miracles, healing people, forgiving people for sins, but of course, he never does these things just for the fact for just for doing them. There's always a reason or a motive behind it. Of course, we know in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus tells us that he is here to inaugurate and to bring in the kingdom of God and to allow people to participate in that. And so some of the reason why he performs miracles is not for a show, not just to gather a crowd, but to show people the authority by which he has to say these things. And today he's going to show us what does it look like or partially what does it look like to live in this kingdom? How do we interact with people and uh, talk to people who are in the kingdom of God and what does that actually look like? And so again we'll be in chapter 2 starting in verse 13 and here's what it says. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Now, if you've been with us, the sea here is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' kind of home base during his uh, earthly ministry was in Capernaum, which was located, it was one of the ports, probably the biggest port on the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is back. You know, he's healed people. There's been crowds following him everywhere. We're not quite sure how long between, you know, the verses beforehand and this, uh, in chapter and verse 13, but he's back at the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are there. Uh, if you will remember, if you were here, the first time that Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee is when he calls his first four disciples. So Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John. And so Jesus is back at the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to call and invite someone else to come and follow him. And then it says this, verse 14. It says, Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, to give us some context, we read this verse and we're like, okay, Jesus called another person, that's awesome, and we can significantly miss... The radicalness of what just happened in this verse. And so I just want to explain some context here. Again, Jesus is at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and this port on the Sea of Galilee is not a large town, it's not a large city. However, uh, it is there is a major trade route that goes through Capernaum. So there's a lot of people coming and going, a lot of people doing business there, a lot of uh, lots, lots of stuff that's going on. And so what would happen is you would have a lot of tax collectors collecting taxes. Now, what you may not know is that certain taxes in the Roman Empire were collected by the Romans themselves. So, their own Roman officials, they would send people. So, taxes like poll taxes, which were taxes on people regardless of your income, or uh, taxes on property, those were collected by Roman officials. And then you had other taxes. I'm not sure why. I'm not a historian, but there was other taxes that, that weren't collected by Roman governing officials. And instead, they would kind of essentially contract them out to locals. And the locals would collect those taxes. And then, of course, give them to the Roman government. And so some of those taxes would be like taxes on transported goods. So again, if you're in a highly trafficked and commercialized market, there's a lot of transported goods. You have the sea and all the fishing. And so these were some of the taxes that were kind of contracted out to people to collect taxes on. And so Jesus uh, sees Levi, who is a tax collector. Now, uh, in this region, there's a lot of Jewish people, which means many of the people who who were contracted with the Roman government were actually Jews themselves who were collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. And that's just who Levi is and where he finds himself. And so Jesus walks by and sees a toll booth. Now, What we would do is so much, uh, so often different than what Jesus would do, right? Typically, if you saw a a toll booth, you would be disgusted and honestly full of hatred. And so it's not quite as intense, but maybe just to give an example to maybe try to put us in this uh, time, uh, this mind frame of, of what they were thinking about. It's kind of like when you're driving on 540 and there's that section of 540 that has the tolls and you're like, this, Why? We're in North Carolina. Part of our taxes are supposed to go to road infrastructure. You're trying to help the, you know, the the traffic situation. And so you add more of a highway, but then you put tolls on it. So people don't drive on it. And so it doesn't help anything. And so when you have to, like when you're on your GPS and it's like with tolls or without tolls, and if you're late, you have to do the with tolls, you know, at least that's me with our kids. And so you go in there and you're just driving by and they take your picture and you're just annoyed. You're just like, this should not be here. Anyone else? Okay, maybe just me. I'm just like, thank you. I'm like, why is this here? Like, it makes me angry, right? That's kind of like, although it's kind of amplified, what you would assume when you saw a toll booth. You would think it's unfair, it's unjust. It would make you angry and upset. So you have the toll booth and you have a tax collector. Now, of course, tax collectors were hated. They were viewed, especially in a Jewish context, the worst of all sinners. Because what would happen is that when you have these tax collectors that were contracted out by the Roman government, they were your friends, they were your family who you grew up with, who you grew up maybe despising, maybe not liking the oppression that the Roman government had on your land, and there's nothing you could do about it. Uh, and so it is un- it is likely the case that every Jewish person or any person who was not a Roman uh, Roman citizen had people who were either mistreated, jailed, or even unjustly killed by the Roman government. And so you would not by and large like them and you would not like their taxes. And so imagine having a friend who you grow up with being annoyed one day decides to join the Roman empire to take money from you and then get rich to to support and to financially continue this oppression that you are experiencing. You would literally hate them. You would hate them. And so, and not only that, for you would hate them for that reason, but again, because they were essentially contracted out, what would happen is a, the Romans would, you'd have, you kind of submit a bid if you wanted to be a tax collector, and the Romans would, uh, would choose certain bids uh, to be the tax collector. So it's, you know, maybe if you're like selling a house, or you're trying to get work done, or, or you're shopping for insurance, right, you, you call different agencies or whatever, and you kind of choose The bid that you like the most, maybe it's because financial reasons or the quality of work, like there's a reason you choose who you choose. And so these people would kind of submit themselves to be tax collectors. The Roman government would choose somebody's bid. And then what would happen is it would be your responsibility to be able to give the Roman government what you promised to give them. And then anything on top of that, you would keep. And so there was a strong financial uh, incentive to do whatever you could to get as much money as you could. Oh, and by the way, most people could do nothing about it. And so again, you've betrayed your own family, betrayed your own friends, your own country, if you will, and you are now profiting off of these people. You would be hated. And so I I don't want to like maybe give, I I don't want to, this is a cliche example, but I want us to really understand the mindset of how people would have thought about what Jesus did. You could kind of think of it like this, like think of a Nazi war informant, right? All of us would agree, we don't like the Nazis, what they did was terrible. Uh, it reminds me, earlier this year, I read a book by Corey ten Boom, it's called The Hiding Place, and it's the story of her and her family, they were Christians, they lived in Holland during World War II, and so Germany ev- eventually invaded Holland and kind of occupied Holland, and they would start to give out rewards for people to essentially tell on their neighbors who were hiding the Jews or hiding Jewish people. And so Corey Ten Boom and her family, they're Christians, and they became part of kind of the underground uh, the movement of, of, of housing Jewish people, getting ration cards for Jewish people, transporting them, so that they would not be taken to concentration camps. Well, eventually, in her story, her own neighbors and people that she had lived and worked with in her own small town that was a really tight-knit community before the Germans came in, told on them, Right, they informed on the, not to the Nazis that her family was a part of this, was a part of this movement to, to keep the Jewish people safe. Long story short, all of her family gets deported to concentration camps, and they all die there except for her. And you read this, and you're heartbroken, and you're angry. You're like, how could your own neighbors, the people you grew up with, do this to you? This is kind of how they would have viewed and how you and I would have viewed a tax collector if we were living in the first century. They were bad people, at least in our minds. And lastly, on top of all of that, to make it even worse, based on the geography of where they were in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, this means that Levi was likely collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, who was the Roman governor of this area of this era, of the area that they are in. And Herod is the one, if you remember, that uh, imprisons John the Baptist, right? The prophet, the forerunner to Jesus. And eventually has John the Baptist beheaded. This is the person that Jesus says to come and to follow him. And so I say all of that to give us this important reminder, that if Jesus welcomes Levi, then Jesus welcomes you. If Jesus is looking at someone who is hated, who has betrayed his own people, who is involved in probably evil and illegal and unkind things, stealing from other people to support the oppressors, if he invites them, he invites us. It's important for us to remember because so often when you read the New Testament, when you hear about Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love for us, there can be this idea, well, you don't know what I've done. Like that's great for other people, but I've done some terrible things or I've had some really bad things done to me and and God certainly can't forgive me. And so if you want to play the comparison game, it is unlikely that your story matches a first century Jew who has become a tax collector and Jesus welcomes him. So if Jesus welcomes Levi, Jesus welcomes you. So again, I'm not saying this for shock value. but I'm just trying to get us into this mindset. This would be similar to us seeing Jesus inviting like a Nazi sympathizer to come and follow him. Someone who's posting hateful and racist rhetoric online and doing all of these terrible things. It is like Jesus saying, hey, come and follow me. If we're being honest, this would make us uncomfortable. Just like it made the first century Jews uncomfortable, it would make us uncomfortable. Uh, This is why when we see throughout the New Testament, although there's not a verse, but you see this concept and you hear people talk about how this idea that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we like this idea because it's like, that means Jesus loves the, the downtrodden and the oppressed and the marginalized. And what we forget is that it's actually really offensive. It's really offensive that Jesus would welcome a tax collector. It's really offensive that Jesus would welcome the racists, the the bigots, the homophobes, whatever you think is like the worst sin in our current cultural moment. Jesus would welcome those people. It would offend us if he were here today. And I don't know how it is for maybe some of you, but I just know for me, if Jesus were here today, he would absolutely do certain things that would offend me. Now hopefully I would learn and I would grow and I would come to accept. But we can, it's, it's so easy for us to read this and be like, well, of course Jesus accepts Levi, because he accepts everyone. Because but 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 we're not emotionally invested in first century Rome. So it's easy for us to say. It's different in our cultural moment where we can be blinded or we can accept certain things and believe certain things, and we can miss out that God is actually challenging those things. And so if he were here today, he would do things like I believe inviting a Nazi sympathizer to show us what it actually means to love and to care for people regardless of whether whether or not we think they deserve it. We would be absolutely offended by what Jesus is doing here. And so let's continue to read in verse 14. I want to read this again. Again, this is what they would have thought of when they saw Jesus inviting a tax collector. Let's read the verse again. It said, Then passing by, he saw Levi, the hated tax collector, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And what happens? And he got up and he followed him. So just one more thing about this verse. So we see the radicalness of inviting Levi, but then we also see the radicalness of Levi's response. Now, again, Mark is very short in his accounts. There, there was probably more than just Jesus shang, showing up and follow, saying, follow me. Uh, Levi might have heard the stories. They might have had interaction privately or you know, pr- prior to this. But for whatever reason, he follows him. Now, Levi's following of Jesus is significant because it is unlike the stories we saw in chapter one where Jesus calls the first four disciples who are fishermen or other disciples who eventually followed Jesus because if things go bad, like if they're disciples of Jesus, if they're followers of Jesus and things go bad, which is what you hope doesn't happen, at least they have something to fall back on. In fact, after Jesus was killed, before he resurrected, some of his disciples went into hiding. Some of them the next day went back to fishing because like, well, what are we going to do? But for Levi. There is no going back. If you are a tax collector and you leave your booth and you say, I'm not doing this anymore, the Romans, the Romans will not let you back. And so he not, no, not only the fact that he does not have a career to fall back on, he has no family and no friends. He would have been uh, excommunicated essentially from his family. He would have no friends that would want to help him out. There is, if this goes poorly, he has nothing. And yet he gives all of this up and he follows Jesus. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, certainly probably not as maybe as intense as this, where you're like, I'm, I'm all in and I'm gonna do this, whether it works or not, right? So like earlier this year, I decided I was gonna get into woodworking, right? And so I bought all this equipment and I'm like, I really hope that I enjoy this. I mean, I'm telling Christina that it's gonna be worth it, but I really hope not, because if not, I'm gonna to have to do this for a year because to, to justify like what I've spent, right? And so, so I've done it and I've liked it. And and now, now that I've been doing it for a while, uh, we've had many conversations, Christine and I, that have begun with her saying to me, "I love you have a hobby, but." So, for example, I hate glitter. I hate it. It's banned from New City Church. If you have it on you, don't. You cannot come in. You're to wash it in the lobby. Uh, so I don't. I, I just. And so she affectionately calls all of my sawdust. Man glitter. And right? that's what she calls it. Because it's like, and so there's all these things like, I love that you're doing this thing, but, but I'm like, hey, I'm all in. Like, I'm doing this thing no matter what. We're, we're in it. And this is what Levi does. He's literally giving up the only thing he has, his job, to come and to follow Jesus. And then it says this in verse 15. It says, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, so this is Jesus, reclining at the table at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners... We're eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. So we're not sure how long this cap, you know, was it later in the day or was it a couple of days later? We're not exactly sure the, the time between verse 14 and 15. But see, now we see Jesus doing something even more crazy or even more radical that Jesus and his disciples not only invite, Jesus not only invites Levi, but goes and has dinner at his house. Now, this is maybe different than us. Like if, if you met someone for the first time and you're like, hey, I'm coming over to your place for dinner, you'd be like, what? No, you know, I don't even know you. Right? In the first century, though, this was an honor that someone would come to your house, that someone would come and eat from your meal. It was a great and it was an awesome responsibility to host and to have people in your home. And I believe that it is not too far out of the imagination to assume that no one ever came to Levi's house. I mean, his family would never have come to his house. His friends that he grew up with never would have come to his house. It is likely that he has never had anybody at his house. And now Jesus and his followers and his disciples are coming to dine at his house. This would have been absolutely earth-shattering for Levi. I mean, he could not have helped but thought, why? Like, you want to come here and you want to eat with me. You have to imagine what this was like. But Jesus not only says, come and follow me, but then he says, I'm coming to your house, the sinner, the tax collector, the one that we would be offended that he even would be in his presence, let alone go to his house. And so again, here's what this shows us. What we see happening here is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And again, as we understand this phrase, hopefully this means that it's not like a, oh, this just feels good. It's like this lighthearted, yeah, he likes everybody. It means he likes the worst of The worst that he's a friend of sinners that he invites them into his home, and so the question for you and for me as we see this is how do you think we would have responded? Right? How do you think we would have responded if we were in this situation? What would we would have done? We would have been certainly upset and offended. And so again, the good news, if we want to play this comparison game, that as Jesus is a friend of sinners, what this means is that he's also a friend to you. Like if he's going to invite Levi, then he's going to invite us. And so in the midst of this radical, uncomfortable moment that would have angered us, here's what we see happen next in verse 16. It says, when the scribes, who were Pharisees, so some of the religious leaders in the region, saw that he, being Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right, Jesus is doing something here that even if you were a non-devout Jew, like even if you were just a cultural Jew, right? You're in the moment, you're in the culture, you're in the situation, you would have found this offensive. Like every single person in this circumstance would have found this offensive. Again, think of it this way. Think about Jesus inviting to dinner or having dinner with people that you and I think are bad. He's not just saying you can come and be around me, but I'm going to have a meal with you. And they're even celebrating this meal together. This would have been radically offensive to us. And on top of all of that, according to some people's interpretation of the law at this time, uh, the tax collectors were seen as unclean, ceremonially unclean, just by virtue of what they did. Right, that What Jesus is doing here is he's voluntarily making himself unclean. Right, It's a little bit different than if an unclean person comes to Jesus or comes and touches Jesus. It's a little bit different between that and Jesus actually going I, intentionally to go to somebody's house to make himself unclean. This is what Jesus does. And on top of all of that to make it even worse or even more uncomfortable to us, there is no hint here that Jesus is doing this because he's trying to get them to do something, right? There's no hint here that he's like, hey, I'm gonna come to your house because I'm gonna try to get you to repent, right? Like I think, I think we would say, you know what, this makes us uncomfortable. Jesus, you're around people that we we, we assume are really bad. But if you're doing it because you're trying to like tell them to get better or tell them to act a certain way, well, then it makes sense. But you don't see this here. He calls Levi who has done nothing, who has not proven anything. He has not promised to change his lifestyle at all. And then he goes to his house and invites other tax collectors and other sinners who have not promised to do anything, and yet Jesus is dining and probably having a good time. They're probably laughing. They're probably telling jokes. uh, They're probably being encouraged by Jesus. He is doing something that is extremely radical. There is nothing here that in our mind would justify this. Like, why are you being their friend? I love how one commentator said it. It'll be on the screen uh, in his commentary or as he's talking about this particular verse, it says it this way. He says, The scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. He doesn't say you can come if... He doesn't say you can come after you do X. He says, you can come today. And not only says, can you follow me? He said, I'm coming to your house and we're going to have a party at your house, the house that nobody wants to go to. That's where I'm going. Again, to try to make us understand the radical of of this, think of somebody in your life who has deeply wounded you, right? We have all been hurt by people. Now, if we're honest, we have all hurt people as well, but think of maybe the person who has wounded you more than anyone else, who who maybe backstabbed you or lied to you or betrayed you or hurt you deeply. Imagine this person, and imagine Jesus hanging out and having dinner at their house. Jesus, who knows all of their sins, who knows how they have hurt you, and yet still decides to go to their house, this would make us upset. This would make us uncomfortable. This would, make, this would not make us happy. And yet Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing here. And again, on top of that, we don't see him giving any truth. He's not saying, stop it. He's not saying, how dare you? He's not saying, you are, you are oppressing God, my own chosen people. He is simply loving them. There is no truth here, but only love. And so we have to ask, why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he risk offending everybody? Why would he risk uh, this movement that he's trying to start? This is not the way to do it. Why would he do this? Well, here's what it says next in verse 17. It says, when Jesus heard this, so when he heard, people were upset about what was going on. He told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's important for us to understand what's going on here. I think in our current cultural moment, one of the things that we value in our culture is being is like standing out and being anti whatever the thing is was going on, right? So being anti authority, anti institution, like deconstruction, like we're, we are all for and we all cheer the person who goes against the mainstream. And so what could be what, what we could do here is you see, see Jesus is just like us. He knows like you're just supposed to bring down, tear down everything that's established is wrong. You just got to change it. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He is not challenging things or being difficult simply for the sake of challenging things and being difficult. He is always doing it for a reason. So for example, when he challenges the religious leaders about the law, the Torah, it's not because observing the Torah or the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament law is wrong. And we know that because Jesus followed it to a T. He actually perfectly followed the law on our behalf because we couldn't. He is not against observance and honoring God and following the law. What, is he, what he is against is using it to weaponize others and to view yourself as authoritative or to view yourself as better than. And so he challenges the religious leaders, not that they follow the law, but they they say, look, how, look at how much better I am than this person, or I can't believe this person doesn't do it. Right? That is the problem. It's not honoring God. It's using it as kind of like a badge for yourself about looking how awesome I am. And what Jesus says here is his mission more than anything else is to invite sinners. In other words, those who know that do not have it all together. Those who know who are broken. Those who know they need redemption. To invite sinners into redemption to invite sinners into his kingdom and the righteous, which are those who think that they are good on their own. They follow the law. I'm a good person. I don't do very many bad things. I don't need it. What Jesus is saying is, I didn't come for you. I came for the people who were honest about their need for me. And tax collectors and sinners would have been honest. They would have known, hey, yeah, culturally, I'm doing some things that most people do not like. They would be, well easily admit that may, maybe that their lifestyle choices aren't the best. And so Jesus is with people who are going to say, yes, I will welcome your acceptance and your forgiveness. But those of us who assume we are righteous, we won't. And so as we read this, this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Is are you a sinner? That's what's happening here. As we read this, we reflect and we we understand what Jesus is calling us to do is to reflect and ask ourselves, are we a sinner? Are you a sinner? Am I a sinner? If you would say, I'm not, well, then you'll find no need for Jesus. Jesus will be of no use to you. Because he came to redeem and to give grace and forgiveness to those who do not have it all together. And if you think you do, you will not need him. But if you would read this and say, yes, I don't have it all together. Yes, I have fallen short. Yes, even of my own standard of goodness and morality, I don't even always live up to that. If that is you, if you would say, yes, I am a sinner, then what does Jesus say? Welcome. He says, I'm coming over to your house today. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's happened to you. And I don't care what people think. You are welcome in my kingdom. Right? The good news of the gospel is what Christ has done for us. not what we try to do to hit for him. Right? We say here at New City Church that if you are in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress because Christ has done it all on our behalf that Christ followed the law to a T, that he lived a life we could not live. He died the death. We deserve to die. And then he triumphed over death in his resurrection to show his victory over darkness and evil and to stand in our place so that we can experience the kingdom of God. If you are a sinner, what Jesus is showing us in this passage is welcome. It's welcome. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages of Scripture, 1 John chapter 2. We'll just read two verses of this. And 1 John, uh, it was written by the disciple John, one of Jesus' disciples. And in chapter 1, it talks about how the need, like if you are a follower of Jesus, we, sure, we should pursue holiness and honoring God with how we live. But if we fall short, and when we fall short, here's the good news. It'll be on the screen, John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing you, you these things, So that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, or when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. That Jesus is now in the throne room of God, advocating on our behalf, saying that is my son, that is my daughter, whom I love and who I have come for. And so all that to say, if you would say this morning, yes, I am a sinner, here's the good news for you and for me. If you are a sinner, then Jesus welcomes you like a friend. If you're a sinner, if you have fallen short, Jesus welcomes you like a friend. And we see this in the New Testament, right? Levi, tax collector, worst of the worst, a sinner, come and follow me. Mary Magdalene, if you're familiar with her story, not the mother of Jesus, but another Mary in the New Testament who was a prostitute. What does Jesus say to Mary Magdalene? Come and follow me. Judas, another one of the disciples who ends up betraying Jesus and stealing from the money bag as they're trying to do their ministry. What does he say to Judas knowing he's gonna betray him? Come and follow me. Listen, I don't know what it's like for you, but this is so radically different than how we often think God interacts with us. We think God is angry. We think if we act a certain way or do a certain thing that we're not good and that we have to come to church to kind of make him like us more and we got to do good things to make up for the bad that we have done. That is not the portrait at all. We see of God throughout all the scripture and we do not see that in Jesus. We see a God who always, every time we repent, anytime we ask for it, comes and gives us grace and forgiveness. We see a God who loves us in spite of all that we have done and he invites us into his kingdom to experience true life, not because of things that we do or not to to try really hard, or not to, to prove it, but as we are today, he accepts us. Now, he wants to lead us into a greater life, but he accepts us today. And so, no matter who you are, or where you find yourself, what you have done, or what has been done to you, you and I need to remember that he welcomes you. If you want it, you are invited to his table. The worst of the worst can come to Jesus, regardless of how that makes him look. Regardless of what that makes other people think, that if you want the grace and the mercy of God, we see radically in this passage that if He welcomes Levi, and if He welcomes Mary, and if He welcomes Judas, then He welcomes you. Jesus welcomes you like a friend. The question is will you accept His invitation? Let's pray.